my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. When you obsess over the competition, instead of obsessing over the customer, you're going to get yourself into big trouble. Because if you're obsessing over the competition, all you can ever know is what they've already done. You can't drive a car 90 miles an hour down the road if you're looking in the rearview mirror. And when you're studying the competition, you can only be looking backwards. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. On this episode, we're going to dig in deep with one of the most versatile and agile marketers in the business. Microsoft, Capital One, Uber, Hilton, and now AT&T have all benefited from her handiwork. She's a rare blend of sociologist, strategist, technologist, quant, and strong leader. She's Kellen Smith-Kenny, the chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T. Kellen grew up and went to college in the Northeast. Her dad was a mathematician, her mom was a nurse, and her aunt was an artist. She calls it an incredible influence of art and science and empathy growing up. We call it math and magic. Rare to find both in one person, but she is one of those unicorns. And her career is not so much marked by where she has been, but rather it's marked by the big successes she has had at each stop. She and her marketing campaigns have won a number of awards. When you dig into how she does it, it'll be apparent why. Although Kellen and I are not old friends, my old friends who know her well rave about her, both as a marketer and as a human. Kellen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Before we jump into the meaty stuff, I'd like to do you in 60 seconds. Are you ready? 
I'm ready. Do you prefer cats or dogs? Dogs. Introvert or extrovert? An introverted extrovert, or possibly an extroverted introvert. <laughs> Mountains or beach? Mountains. Ski or snowboard? Ski, ski, ski. Your first job? Lifeguard. Dream vacation? Heli skiing on a glacier. Mathlete or athlete? <laughs> Both. Cell phone or landline? Cell phone. All dressed up or keeping it casual? All dressed up. Favorite thing to cook? I can barely boil water. <laughs> Smartest person you know? My grandmother. Childhood hero? My parents. Favorite city? Seattle. And what did you want to be when you were growing up? President of the United States. Well, it's yet to come. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Before you get to be president of the United States, let's talk about a little bit of, uh, of some other stuff here. And let's jump in to where you are right now, AT&T. One of the greatest brands of the last hundred years. You've got a brilliant strategist, John Stanky, is your CEO, and he is clearly driving the company to maximize your assets and capitalize on that amazing brand. Describe for us this next phase of AT&T. Where are you headed? When I think about where AT&T is headed in the future, we want to be famous for delivering the type of connectivity that connects people to greater possibility. And we want to do it in a way that makes everything simple. We want people to have the confidence knowing that it's coming from the experts at AT&T. And we want every single touch point that we have with a customer to be inspiring. That means we need to lean into best-in-class, best-in-breed connectivity solutions from 5G and fiber to the converged way that consumers and business decision makers are choosing to consume connectivity today. So how does having this long and storied brand help you? And how does it hurt you? What do you have to work around? The company was founded by Alexander Graham Bell 147 years ago. The inventor of the telephone, the inventor of cable, fiber, the first transcontinental phone call, the first call to the moon, 3G, 4G, 5G. Even the information theory was founded in AT&T's Bell Labs. And so we've got this incredibly rich legacy of innovation and invention that has powered commerce across the United States that has changed human relations, that superpowered so much of the innovation and the technology growth that we saw in the early 2000s. So on the one hand, you've got this incredible legacy and every single employee inside of AT&T wants to live up to that legacy. And we wanna usher in the next great wave of innovation for the next 150 years. But also, you have to resist getting complacent. You can't look backwards and take a victory lap again and again. You have to push forward into the future. Is there still a legacy of the brand power of Bell Labs? I mean, when I was growing up, there could not be a bigger name in technology and innovation than Bell Labs. You know, I'll tell you a funny little story. My dad actually worked at Bell Labs. And so I'd heard about Bell Labs as a kid growing up. What's been incredible since coming to AT&T is when you meet with people who work in the labs, they are some of the finest academics and scholars in their universities, in their colleges. And they will tell you they contemplated every big tech company and they wanted to come to AT&T because they wanted to be part of Bell Labs. So I would say absolutely. If you look at the incredible contributions that 
Bell Lab scientists, technologists have made to our society. There is a tremendous amount of pride there. So you're a marketer who is not based in L.A., New York, or San Francisco, but rather you're in Dallas. Does being in real America give you and your marketers an edge? You know, that's a great, that's a great way of thinking out. I always tell people I'm a New Yorker living in Dallas, supporting the Cowboys, eating the best Tex-Mex in the U.S. <laughs> and wearing cowboy hats to the rodeo. And absolutely, I think it helps you get in touch with your customer base. But even if you are a marketer living in L.A. or San Francisco or New York, it is so crucial that you spend time with the customers, that you spend time with frontline employees. That is the best lesson. One of the most incredible experiences I've had at AT AT&T is we have these connection days for our employees that work at headquarters. And I actually went into people's homes and installed fiber. You get to see the types of questions that customers have from the very tech-savvy customers who want to do everything themselves to the customers that are much more reliant on the technicians that go on-premises. You get to see what it's like to actually wire fiber throughout a building that's got you know, a thousand tenants. It's pretty extraordinary. Oh, that's cool. So how has your past experience, Microsoft, Cap One, Uber, Hilton, prepared you for this particular opportunity? Gosh, I've had such incredible opportunities in my career. The thing I learned at Microsoft is that technology and technology alone is not going to be the reason why somebody adopts your product. I worked at Microsoft and the very first product I worked on was Windows Vista. It was one of the most highly anticipated technology products of its era. I think it was five years in the making. People everywhere were on the edge of their seats waiting to see what Microsoft would release. You probably remember that when we released it into the marketplace, it landed like a nuclear thud. (laughs) Bomb, bomb. It was a total bomb. And what we learned in that time was that We had fallen in love with the technology and we had forgotten about the most important person in the equation, and that was the end user. We missed the consumerization of technology. We missed that the vast majority of our customers weren't using 99% of the features that we put in that operating system that ultimately bloated the operating system, slowed it down, and made it far less attractive. And so the incredible lesson learned from Microsoft is focus on the customer. I've seen at times in my career, whether it was teams I was on or competitors I was facing off against, is when you obsess over the competition, instead of obsessing over the customer, you're going to get yourself into big trouble. Because if you're obsessing over the competition, all you can ever know is what they've already done. You can't drive a car 90 miles an hour down the road if you're looking in the rearview mirror and when you're studying the competition, you can only be looking backwards. It sounds like you probably did the same thing at Cap One, Uber and Hilton too, of a consumer focus. Seems to be your hallmark. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I would say at Capital One, we were incredibly, incredibly scientific about how we went to market. And so we treated it as this just obsession with getting better and better. We had this learning mindset, this growth mindset all throughout the company. So that test and learn mentality was so critical. And of course, when you're testing and learning, the ultimate guidepost is the customers. Are the customers receptive to it? Are they buying it? Are they upgrading? Are they telling other people about it? You get immediate feedback. The other thing that was incredible about Capital One 
is that that company found religion about building a brand through all of the testing and learning that it did in performance marketing before performance marketing was even a word. And so years and years ago, when Capital One was one of the largest customers of the U.S. Postal Service, they ran a test, a blank envelope with no branding on it, and then an envelope that actually had the Capital One logo on the outer left-hand corner. And what they originally found was that the blank envelope outperformed the branded envelope. And right then and there, yeah, ouch, And right then and there, the founder and CEO of Capital One, Rich Fairbank, said, this is unacceptable. We have got to build this brand. And so that's when the company really leaned into building awareness, building consideration, building familiarity, and ultimately preference. Interesting stuff. We keep going back to power of brand, 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 even when we talk performance marketing. So when I arrived at Uber, we were spending around a billion dollars in performance marketing. However, what we started to recognize was that the pipeline of true prospects, where we were going to source that next great wave of growth, was starting to elude us. And we did some very rudimentary, quick-turn research based on hypotheses that some of us on the team had. Do you remember when people say, oh, I'm going to call an Uber? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I sure do. Right. So we did a survey, and it turned out that 85% of people who had never tried Uber, thought you literally called an Uber. You picked up the phone and dialed 1-800-555-Uber. So we recognized that we had a massive amount of education that we needed to do. So we recognized we needed to turn on more upper funnel channels like radio, like TV, like digital video. And I cannot make this up. Within the first two weeks of turning on TV, all of the lower funnel performance vehicles were performing 27% better. I want to go back a little bit on what you're doing at AT AT&T. Let's talk about the transformation. It's a huge company, and by reputation, you would expect it to be more toward the bureaucratic end of the spectrum. So how do you, John Stanky, and the rest of his team turn the battleship for transformation? One of the things that we recently did as a company was we declared our purpose. We said, what is the epicenter of why we do everything that we do? What motivates us? And we did a tremendous amount of research across customers, employees, investors, historians, even people in adjacent industries. We wanted to understand how they viewed AT&T, where they felt that we had room and frankly, the authority to play. But we also wanted to make sure that it was a reflection of us on our very best day, that it honored the folklore and the incredible history of the company, but that it was ready to take AT&T into the next several decades. And so when we declared that purpose, which is to connect people to greater possibility with expertise, simplicity, and inspiration, we paired that with a series of seven strategic imperatives, the things that we knew we needed to do over the course of the next five to seven years to really become famous for connecting people to greater possibility, to really become the undisputed expert on connectivity. And then in addition to those strategic imperatives, we focused on the culture of the company. We declared our culture values. When you're working inside of a legacy company, having clarity of purpose, but also having clarity of expectation on the culture you want to build is so incredibly powerful. We talk about 
acting boldly, not playing it safe, you know, not allowing yourself to take that victory lap and then get complacent, but continuing to challenge yourself. And then if we're going to act boldly, we need to move faster. So those four cultural values are guiding every action we take inside the company. And then we evaluate ourselves on how are we progressing against those culture pillars. Each year we survey our employees, we get their feedback, and they don't hold back. And so just keep pushing ourselves and pushing ourselves and pushing ourselves to be the very best that we can be. The world we live in is filled with messages for consumers and across so many platforms. How do you break through that? Are we back to the magic of reach and frequency? (laughs) Gosh, when you look at the statistics, it is staggering. Customers are being bombarded with content. The last time I checked, I think the average person scrolls through at least a football field and a half of content on their phone each day. Um, The last time I checked- It feels like it to me, I must say. I I know. The last time I checked, the average person received over 150 emails a day. The last time I checked, and this one really knocked me back in my seat, the amount of time that the average consumer in the U.S. spends on social media per day is over two hours. If we think about that in aggregate, that's over one full month a year that people are now spending on a technology that 15, 20 years ago didn't even exist. The game board is stacked differently now for marketers. The game board is stacked differently for brands. So can we play the game the same way that we played it 15, 20 years ago? Not a chance. We won't be successful. You know, if the old measure was reach and frequency, that totally undermined the power of incredible creative. At least at AT AT&T, we are really leaning into how do we make sure that the quality of our creative is the absolute best in industry? And how do we make sure that the media and sponsorships that we're engaging with are the absolute premium? Moral math and magic right after this quick break. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Kellen Kenny. I want to step back in time a little bit. I want to put you in context. Tell us where you grew up and paint a picture of that time and place. I grew up in a town called Brewster, New York. It was the last stop on the Harlem line of Metro North. So there were absolutely friends of mine whose parents commuted into this city. The city was a place that I went once or twice a year. Went to Brewster High School where my graduating class was 180. I was a big time athlete. And as you appropriately called out, mathlete. I had 14 varsity letters by the time I graduated. So I come from a long line of athletes. And I was always taught that you got to work really hard. And if you work hard enough, and you practice long enough, you can be successful. So how often did you eat at Red Rooster? <laughs> okay, not only did I eat soft-serve ice cream at Red Rooster in Brewster, but I also went mini-golfing at the Red Rooster. Have you ever gone mini-golfing there? I have. I have. When my oldest son was a little kid, and by the way, with a little kid, you've got to stop at Red Rooster. Just the drive was how far to Red Rooster, not how far is it to where we're going. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I never took off as a golfer, and I blame the mini-golf course at the Red Rooster, because that windmill obstacle, it got me every time. <laughs> <laughs> so talk a little bit about your parents. You mentioned them earlier. What impact did they have on you? Well, my parents were definitely my heroes growing up. They were both incredibly kind, loving, supportive, but they set a really high bar for their one and only child. I threw my hat into the ring for everything. Class president, you know, varsity sports. Uh, Varsity Society, National Honor Society. If there was a club, I wanted to raise my hand and be a part of it. But my mom, she started her career as a nurse. She then went on to lead outpatient services for one of the largest hospitals in the state of New York. It was White Plains Hospital at the time. She had an organization of a thousand people. And every once in a while, when I would have a day off from school, she'd bring me into the office and I would do administrative tasks like filing and I remember thinking, wow, the people in the hospital, they really respect my mom. She was kind to everyone. Everybody greeted her with a smile. But you could also tell that she meant business. She was, she was tough, but a huge inspiration. And then my father, who I mentioned, worked at Bell Labs. He actually worked at Bell Labs after his stint with the Boston Red Sox. So he was a professional pitcher in the major leagues for the Red Sox. And his nickname when he was pitching for the Red Sox was College Boy, because at the time, a lot of professional baseball players actually didn't go to college. And not only did he go to college, but he was getting his master's degree at the University of Southern Cal in the off season. So obviously, he really valued education. He went on to work at Bell Labs, and then he went on to become a teacher 
but he was always my number one coach. So every sport I ever played, my personal coach was my dad. He just loved sport. He loved competition. And he was an incredible motivating factor all throughout my life. So let's talk about college. You went to college at Colgate. Why there and what did you study? Uh, So I started off as a math major. I then migrated over to computer science. I ended up minoring in computer science, but really falling in love with economics. So I majored in economics. And one of the coolest things I did when I was at Colgate was I went on the London Economics Study Group and we got to do incredible programs with the London School of Economics. We had economists for Her Majesty's Treasury coming in and doing independent study with us. You you went on to be a tech consultant, then went to Northwestern for business school. What foundations did those experiences give you? I had an important realization that I wanted to be closer to the customer. While I loved the work that I was doing as a technology consultant, I loved the intellectual rigor of it. What I missed was the feeling that I was impacting something directly. And I would say as a pretty young professional, I began to form my values as an individual. And I always say that the eyes of Kellen are, I want to have an impact. I want to drive real innovation. And I want to do all of that with integrity. My personal motto is that the view is better from the high road. Then I went on to Northwestern Kellogg School of Management, where the program was famous for being student-led. And I didn't really know what that meant before I got there. But what I realized was they expected you to form your committees. They expected you and and your co-students to run every one of those committees, to decide on the strategy, to define the execution plan, to operate, to raise the funds. We really were self-governed. And that was so important because for the first time in my career, I was working with people who had very, very different backgrounds from me. And what I originally thought when I went into business school is this is taking longer. You know, we have to we're wasting all this time figuring out how we want to work together. That was sort of my going in assumption for the first two, three weeks of business school. I'll just do it. It'll go faster. And then within four or five weeks, I realized, Kellen, you idiot. The collective wisdom of this group of four or five or seven people is truly transformative. And one thing that I kind of beat myself up about was I had always played team sports. I had always played softball. I had always been on basketball teams growing up. Why did it take me so long to figure out that the working world, the professional world, was a team sport too? You know, it's interesting. We talk to a lot of people in math and magic, and I think that's probably one of the common elements that comes through is teams win, people don't. And the people who build great teams are the big, big winners here. It's interesting looking at your career. And, you know, I was going through the research. I was sort of fascinated by the fact that, you know, in Microsoft, Cap One, Uber, you were building, had extra money. They had plenty of money to put at it. And then at Hilton, you were dealing with a situation that had big cutbacks and headcount and spending, yet you won there as well. So clearly it wasn't how big's my budget, how many people do I have? What was common about those challenges you had? Well, one of the most galvanizing conversations I had related to Hilton happened before I joined. I was sitting down with Chris Nassetta, the CEO, and he was passionately 
speaking to the power of brand. He said the last two remaining loose ends that he wanted to tie up was around technology and brand. And he said, how is Hilton going to achieve its full potential? How is Hilton going to leave the legacy that it deserves? If you're a franchise company and you don't have world-class technology and you don't have world-class branded marketing. And so I could see even before I started, frankly, we were just having a conversation. I wasn't even applying for the job, but I could see that he was dead serious about investing in Hilton's future. And he had incredible natural instincts about where to take marketing and where to take the brand. The ambition inside the company was really inspiring. And one of the things that I found inside of Hilton that was such a secret weapon was the culture of hospitality, the customer focus, and the entrepreneurial spirit of making sure that every single customer's stay was a type of momentum that I was able to leverage coming in and doing marketing. That was another example of a company where we needed to define the purpose. It was another example of the company where we had an incredible rich legacy. We were able to, again, through experimentation and learning agendas, get to a place where we were much more efficient. You've got a pretty high perch in the world of business. How should we think about companies' responsibilities and even imperative to help the world be a better place? And what should we do and what should we not do? One of the things that's been inspiring to me about AT&T is that the company has a legacy of doing the right thing. Stepping up when we recognize that, hey, there is a digital divide forming in society. The kids who have access to computers can do their homework, and the kids who don't can't do their homework. And so I would say so many of the lessons that I've learned throughout my career in terms of doing the right thing, the responsibility of businesses, have really been epitomized by the stances that AT&T is taking. I absolutely believe that companies need to do good in the world and that doing good in the world is motivating to employees. It attracts customers to you. It attracts investors to you. Over the course of the past three years, we've deployed over $2 billion to help close that gap. And we identify the gap as people who either don't have access to it because they're in a community that is so rural that it's underserved or to people who technically they do have access, but it's not affordable to them. And AT&T is trying to fight the pressures on both ends because we recognize that if we want to have a brighter future as a society and as a country, we need our children, the leaders of tomorrow. We need those students to have access to technology so that they can do their homework, that they can continue to learn. Yeah, I'll give AT&T a nod in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, when I was elementary school, AT&T brought things to our elementary school assembly. And I still remember them bringing in, I guess it was in the era of Sputnik, they brought in, was it the Vanguard satellite or brought in some presentation, had a little model of it and showed it to these kids in this little town. And I was a science kid and it was like, changed my life. And I'm sure at that moment, it was the same thing. It was that sort of continuing community outreach and trying to build the next generation. So let me, let me move back to you. You've had great successes. People who know you well, friends of ours, the one word everybody uses is humble. How do you keep your ego in check when you've had all these successes? First of all, being described as humble is 
a real compliment. So thank you for passing that along. I, I appreciate it. I truly want to be seen as somebody who is both humble and confident. And part of where my humility comes from is if you're surrounded by extraordinary people, extraordinary friends, an extraordinary family, extraordinary coworkers, it is humbling. Every time I'm in a relationship with a coworker or a, you know, a mentor, I am tracking all of the things that they do that really impress me. And I want to be more like them. And so there's rarely a person that I come across that I don't think X, Y, and Z are the things I admire about that person. And I wish I could be more like that. And so I'm constantly thinking about where I want to go, not what I've accomplished. I'm constantly thinking about what I can do to be better, not what I've done that makes me good. And by the way, that's probably a byproduct of being raised by parents who had an incredibly high bar that kept on rising. <laughs> so I just focus on where the bar is rising, not the bars that I've already leaped over. I think it probably goes back to that mini golf course at Red Rooster, that humbling experience <laughs> of the windmill. Let's talk about work-life balance. Any advice on that? You got a family, you obviously have a rich mosaic of friendships. How do you make that work? That is a question that keeps me humble. My family is an incredible priority for me. I was asked a question the other day and they said, how do you stay grounded? I'm like, well, if you have an 11 year old daughter, she's gonna keep you grounded. She's gonna put you right <laughs> in your place every day. Um, same thing with my eight year old daughter. But no, balance for me is making sure that I'm there at the school concerts, making sure that I'm there to help with homework, making sure that I'm there to cheer them on when they're starring in a production of The Jungle Book or Cat in the Hat. We talked about this earlier. I'm not someone who can cook. I don't, I don't get home and whip up a meal. I outsource that. But I do try to be present when I'm home. I do try to make sure that the weekends are as sacred as humanly possible for family. I do try to make it home to tuck the kids into bed every night. I used to sing them lullabies almost every night, but I was told by my 11-year-old that that is totally uncool and now unacceptable. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's just making time for the moments that really matter, prioritizing time on on vacation and then with work, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not the best at not letting it encroach on life outside of work, but at least when the kids are awake, I try to be with them. It's after they go to bed that I hop back on the phone or the iPad or the computer and bang out work or, or even take work calls. The one thing I will say as a leader that I'm very proud and think I've done well is I really honor my team members, their time with their families. I don't ever, unless it is a true emergency, I don't ever send them a text or an email on the weekend. I always am very respectful about things they're doing in the evening. And so I think modeling it with your direct reports, making sure that people on your team know that you really respect their time is another way. Do you think that that experience you had with your mom where you went to work with her and saw her working and participated in her work helped you understand that sort of work-life integration uh, that families have? Oh, absolutely. So I saw a woman who was the epitome of work hard, play hard. There was no one more diligent. There was no one more focused on making sure her patients had excellent, excellent care, 
there was no one more focused on making sure that when she had her state reviews, that she came back and got a perfect score. Again, because that was a reflection of the type of care that they were offering their patients. But also she was a wonderful leader. But it didn't end there. She was an incredible mother. She came to all my softball games, tennis matches, ski races. She literally would bundle up, walk up the side of mountains, you know, in the middle of a blizzard if it meant supporting me. So she was an incredible example. But not only that, she had a rich life. She had wonderful friends. She played tennis herself and she competed. So I I saw a woman who worked incredibly hard, but led a very rich life with family and friends. She was an incredible example to me. So let me ask one more personal question. If you could go back in time and give your 21-year-old self some advice, what would that advice be? Believe in yourself and continue to challenge the status quo. Don't accept that because somebody has tried it before and it's not been successful, that it can't work out for you. Be the type of person that other people want to be around. Be the type of leader that brings out the very best in those around you. Extend trust. Create a psychologically safe environment for everyone you work with because that's when people do their absolute best work. We end each episode of Math & Magic with a shout out to the greats on both ends of the spectrum of marketing. The math folks, those who use the analytics as their secret weapon, and the magicians, those who use that sort of raw creativity and showmanship. Who gets your shout out for each? So my shout out on the math and science side, Adam Grant. I actually had the opportunity to interview him at a marketing town hall a couple of years ago, right after he had written the book, Think Again. And in my humble opinion, it is the best business book of our generation. He systematically and scientifically illustrated the difference between companies and individuals that approach their work like scientists with humility, curiosity, a bias for learning. They challenge their assumptions versus the people who are trapped in that overconfident cycle of hubris and arrogance and confirmation bias. And I read that book and I thought, oh my gosh, everybody needs to read this. (laughs) Okay. On the magician side, who gets it? Okay. I'm going to give it up to my girl, Reese Witherspoon. Wow. Uh, I know. So a couple of months ago, I had an opportunity to interview Reese and Jennifer Gardner and Mindy Kaling at the inaugural Shine Away Connected by AT&T event in L.A., And Reese really does have that magic touch. In addition to being a brilliant businesswoman with an insatiable appetite for books, it seems that every project she touches turns to gold. Her formula of championing the creative work of women is producing staggering results. I know this because I prepared for the interview, but at the time, over 60 of Reese's book club's picks had landed on the New York Times bestseller list. She had 15 wins, I believe it was, across Emmys, SAG, and Golden Globes. Not to mention, you know, some of my very favorite content of the year and over the past few years. My shout out goes to Reese Witherspoon. Wow, that's great. Kellen, really a great conversation. And sadly, we just scratched the surface. But thanks for the insights, stories, and advice. And most of all, congrats on your amazing successes. Well, thank you so much. It is an incredible honor to be interviewed by you.
Here are a few things I picked up from my conversation with Kellen. One, get on the ground. You need to know your consumer to know what they want, but you never will unless you meet them head on. Get out from behind your desk and seek out experiences you usually wouldn't be in. Be in the focus room, get on the retail floor, or visit customers' homes with technicians like Kellen did. The more you know, the better your product will be. Two, your brand is your power. Whether you're a startup or an iconic company like AT&T, the most important thing to do as a marketer is to build a strong brand identity. Make sure the public knows who you are and what your brand stands for. That familiarity will bring trust and trust will bring a loyal consumer base. Three, work as a team sport. In business, your greatest tool is the people around you. When a team really works together, their diversity of experience will bring about more creative solutions and build something unique. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeart Podcasts. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sidney Rosenblum for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Math and Magic's producers are Emily Marinoff and Jessica Kreinchich. It is mixed and mastered by Bahid Frazier. Our executive producers are Nikki Etor and Ali Perry. And of course, a big thanks to Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.